following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. We are uh, in this, the final week of this series on the atonement. Uh, I hope that this has been half as rich and deep and profound for, for some of you as it has been for me as we've gone through this. I have learned so much in my study and reading, and I feel, as I said at the beginning of the series, that I've um, begun to understand God's grace and salvation in a new and deeper way. And uh, I said it, that this is kind of like a tectonic shift, deep below the surface, and that can be disconcerting when we have these deep subterranean theological shifts, can't it? Because you don't know whether you're going to end up with a mountain or a a gorge, or um, I don't really know much more about plate tectonics than that, but um, <laughs> it can be a little bit even frightening, and I, I know that some of you have been challenged by some of these concepts, hearing the gospel proclaimed in a, in a new way that's, that's um, been uh, profound and, and challenging. So um, I'd encourage us all to keep thinking about these things and, and reading and praying about them. What I want to do today is try to conclude this series with one sermon that could have been the whole series. Okay, so this is a, a, a bit of a daunting task, but hey, it'll be fun. Uh, and what I want to talk about today is a Jewish concept of the atonement. Not Jewish in the sense that it's what Jewish people believe about atonement today, but Jewish in the sense that Christianity's roots are in the Jewish faith and tradition, and many of the ways that we understand how it is that Jesus saves us come from these roots. And so what I would like to do is talk about uh, sacrifice specifically this morning. I want to talk about three Jewish sacrifices, and I will explain each of them to you briefly. I won't have time to go into very much depth. But then I want to ask together the question, what does what does this have to do with Christian theology? What does this have to do with our understanding of the atonement through Jesus? How does this indicate or explain or help us understand Jesus' salvation for us? Okay? So three Jewish sacrifices. That'll be our framework this morning. The first Jewish sacrifice is the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, we've talked about this passage, which you can find in Genesis 22, uh, a couple of times this year as we've been seeking to be shaped by the words of Scripture. We've come back to it a couple of times despite the fact, and maybe because of the fact, that it's a very difficult, profoundly disturbing story. If you don't know the story, here's, here it is in brief. Uh, God called a man named Abraham to be the father of his great nation. The great family. That word is the same in Hebrew. Um, and uh, promised Abraham that he would become the father of a great nation, even though Abraham and his wife Sarah were very old and they were childless, and this uh, was a biological um, improbability. Let's say it that way. Uh, and so, after many years of walking in faith with no sign that God was going to make this promise true, Abraham and Sarah finally did have a son together, and his name was Isaac. When the boy was about 14, Abraham heard this word from God saying, Take your son up to the mountain of Moriah 
and sacrifice him. And so Abraham had to make a decision in that moment. Do I trust the God who made this promise to me and then fulfilled it, even though I'm being told to go do something which would violate it, not to mention my own conscience and every emotional cell in my body? Or do I begin a path of disobedience, keeping my son for myself, and where would that leave me? Well, Abraham acted in obedience. And uh, he gave the wood to his son Isaac, who carried it on his back. And they took a three-day journey up to this hill. And uh, Abraham bound the boy and put him on an altar. This is the, uh, in Hebrew, Akedah. This is the story of the binding of Isaac. That's how it's described in Jewish communities to this day. He's bound and on the altar. And just as Abraham raises the knife to do the unthinkable act, the angel of the Lord stops him and says, no, don't sacrifice your son. And then Abraham sees a ram, a sheep, caught in a thicket, and he sacrifices that animal instead of the child. So this is a very difficult story to hear. Why would a loving God call Abraham and then tell him to kill his only son? Well, uh, there are a couple of things going on here, and I won't go into it too deeply because we have talked about it already this year. But one thing we do know about the culture of the day was that human sacrifice, and yes, indeed, even child sacrifice, was very much a reality Archaeological and other historical evidence shows us that people were, in fact, sacrificing children to appease their gods. And so, the rabbis tend to teach that this is a story about God saying no to human sacrifice. God saying to his people, come to this point and see what you're about to do and then I will stop you and say, no, this is not the way to appease this God. So it's a repudiation of a reprehensible practice, in addition to it being perhaps a test of faith. And that doesn't answer all the questions or solve all the problems that we might have with this story, but it, it, it's a starting point, isn't it? It's a little bit of a help to us. And by the way, that's a, that's a good technique and approach to take with difficult passages sometimes. Um, You have to see what the story is saying, and then you have to imagine that story being told in its original context. Because we hear the story one way as 21st century Western people, and we're horrified by it. But when you put around the story, its cultural setting, the fact that there was child sacrifice and that this is perhaps God's way of saying no. So you have these two data points now. You have the biblical story and you have the historical uh, setting. And if you draw a line between those two things, you might just have a trajectory for the type of movement that God wants to make with his people. Right? So that can be a helpful general overall technique for reading scripture in addition to helping us with this difficult passage. Now, if I were to say to you, where do you see Jesus in this story of Abraham and Isaac, what would your answer be? It's it's pretty easy to see, with Christian lenses, um, Jesus in 
the person of Isaac, the only son, the three days, the carrying the wood up on the hill. And I think that that's a, a helpful way to think about that story for Christian people, perhaps. It's interesting, though, that the New Testament doesn't make the connection between Jesus and Isaac, but it does make the connection between God the Father and Abraham, right? If you look at Genesis twenty-two twelve, the angel says this, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for, to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Good Jewish people would have had that phrasing memorized. Remember, this is a pre-print uh, society, a pre-literate society, so scripture was in your head, right? And so when Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, Romans 8.32, speaking of God the Father, he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Right? So Paul wants to make the connection between Abraham as a good father and, the, and uh, in the tradition of Yahweh, the father of all people. So that's the first sacrifice story, the sacrifice of Isaac, which didn't end up being the sacrifice of Isaac, but the sacrifice of a sheep. The second sacrifice that I want to talk about is the Passover sacrifice. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 12. So Abraham's descendants did become, as God promised, as numerous as the stars. Uh, Maybe not in a Neil deGrasse Tyson understanding of the size of the universe, but in the idea of looking up at the sky and seeing more than you can count. (laughs) Uh, Abraham's descendants were like the stars. Um, Eventually, many generations after Abraham, they found themselves enslaved in Egypt by a spiteful, oppressive king, the pharaoh. And in that context, God called one of the Israelites, Moses, to lead his people out of slavery. Moses was an unlikely candidate for this kind of work. He was not only a stutterer, and so uh, uh, royal hall politics was not going to be something that came naturally to him, but he also was a murderer. But that's the person that God chose to call. And so Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, no. And, the God, and, and then so there's this series of plagues that God visits upon the people. Um, these awful things that, that make the Pharaoh say, okay, fine, you can go. Wait, 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 wait. no, you can't go. So it's things like they t- it turns the river Nile into blood and the, the whole country is overcome with frogs and there's a pestilence of locusts and the cattle die and all these things. There's ten plagues and the tenth one is the most horrible of all. And once again, it's a really troubling story for us to read um, unless you have a very, uh, I think, kind of self-centered and childlike understanding of the story. Um, In Sunday school, this was like a yippee, all the people got free. Um, but when you read it with adult eyes, it becomes tra- challenging to you, uh, did to me anyway. Because the tenth plague was that the angel of death would come through all of Egypt, taking the life of every firstborn son in each household. Where does the sacrifice come in? Well, God instructs Moses to instruct the people that to avoid being 
the victims of this plague, they should slaughter a lamb, prepare a meal with unleavened bread, because guess what? You're going to need to run so fast after this plague hits that you don't even have time for your bread to rise. And they were instructed to sprinkle the blood of this slaughtered lamb on the doorposts of their houses so that the angel of death would pass over those houses. Uh, And so that's what happened. The Hebrew people who were obedient to the instruction were spared this plague, and the Egyptians, including the Pharaoh himself, uh, became victims of this plague, and the firstborn in every household was killed. And so the Pharaoh does relent, and the people flee. So let me ask you the same question about this sacrifice story. Where in the Passover story do we see Jesus? Do we see him in there at all? Well, the authors of the New Testament are very clear about this point, that Jesus is our Passover. Um, I'll give you one example, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. It says, clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch, as you really are unleavened. For our Paschal Lamb, our Passover, Christ has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Jesus is our Passover. In some sense, that is how he saves us. This Jewish story gives us some clues. And faith in Jesus is like the new exodus. It's the journey that you begin, and it may involve 40 years of wandering. (laughs) But let's tap the brakes just a little bit on this story and this uh, interpretation and application. Because there is no sense in the Jewish Passover in which the lamb is slaughtered as a substitute for the people's sin. That is not present in the story in any sense. The lamb does not receive God's wrath instead of the people. Rather, think of the lamb and the whole Pesach, the whole Passover meal, as a covenant meal that identifies this particular group of people as exempt from judgment and as ready for deliverance. So for us, coming to faith in Jesus as our Passover is an act of opting into a salvation that God extends rather than an act of sheltering and hiding from uh, a God who wants to kill us. So the sacrifice of Isaac is the first sacrifice. The Passover sacrifice is the second sacrifice. And the third sacrifice actually involves, now that I think of it, two sacrifices, is the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. 
If you would like to read about this, you can dig into uh, Leviticus 16. I know that you guys spend a lot of time in Leviticus on your personal devos. Um, You love Leviticus, uh, so this is going to be very familiar to you, but check out Leviticus 16. This is the story. Now, when God's people were freed from slavery in Egypt and they began the exodus, um, I'm going to resist the temptation to sing Bob Marley right now. Um, It's a movement of uh, people, but uh, you know... (laughs) They do wander for 40 years before they come to the land that God has promised them. And during that wandering, they receive instructions through Moses to set up a tabernacle, a tent of meeting, which would be for them as they traveled around the place where God's physical presence could be localized and where all the uh, rituals would take place and so forth. And so the, the special tribe that made up the priestly caste in uh, the Israelite system were tasked with uh, carrying these tent poles and things around. And every time they would make camp, the priests would set up this tabernacle, this tent of meeting with all the uh, trimmings and trappings of the system. And only they were ever allowed to go into it. Now, inside the tabernacle was an even specialer place. And yes, specialer is a word. Um, known as the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. So when you see Holy of Holies or uh, something like that, um, that phrasing uh, just means like the very most of that thing. Uh, So King of Kings, Lord of Lords, like he's the greatest king, he's the greatest Lord. Uh, Song of Solomon is actually the Song of Songs. It's the greatest love song ever written. That's the idea, Song of Songs. Uh, This is the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy Place is this very holy place, and it's Uh, partitioned off with uh, a curtain. And just as only the priests could go into the tabernacle to do these uh, regular sacrifices, only the high priest could go into the most holy place. And he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. It's on our screen. Uh, And you may remember from the first week in our series that atonement is an English word that has originally uh, only a a religious meaning because it's it's our best efforts to translate the Hebrew word Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement and uh, for us atonement is is this kind of at-one-ment. It's how we're made one uh, and reconciled to God. Uh, So the priest, the high priest, went into the Holy of Holies on the day of atonement and performed this really bizarre ritual. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God rested uh, on the, uh, the mercy seat between these two angels, right? And we talked about in our flannel graph how the, the two angels were, were outside the tomb when, at the resurrection, kind of revisiting that imagery. Um, but the priest would come in and he would first sacrifice a bull uh, for his own sins. And then he would bring in two goats as well. Now, one, he would cast lots. This is so weird, right? He would cast lots to determine which goat was going to be which type of goat that year. Right? So one goat would be slaughtered and sacrificed uh, in the traditional Hebrew sacrificial way. And the blood would be spattered on this Ark of the Covenant. The, the priest had to dip his finger and sprinkle the blood seven times. And it, it was, um, you can read, read the ritual. It's really quite um, interesting. <laughs> And the second goat is called the scapegoat. And on this goat, the high priest would place his hands on the goat's head. 
and he would confess all the sins of all the people for the whole year. Now, their community was somewhat bigger than ours, but I'd like you to imagine for a minute me having to stand and put my hands on a goat (laughs) and confess all of your sins, because I've already done my own with the bull, right, Um, from the whole year. I don't know how long this took. Some years may be longer than others. (laughs) But the scapegoat wasn't killed. The scapegoat was cast out, was led away from the community into the wilderness by somebody, a special somebody who then had to ritually cleanse himself before he could return to the community. So this sacrifice is maybe more bizarre and strange to us than the others. And I wonder, where do we see Jesus in this story? Which character in this story is Jesus for us? What's the analog? Is Jesus the goat who's sacrificed? Is Jesus the scapegoat who bears the sins of the community and carries them away? Is Jesus the high priest who intercedes before God on behalf of all people? What's the answer? Yes, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Let me make a couple of observations in, in keeping with this trajectory that we've been on through this series. And this, this, what I'm about to say is true for all Jewish sacrifices, but, but let's think about the Day of Atonement for right now. The sacrifice of the goat was not efficacious because of the amount of suffering involved. As a matter of fact, priests were good butchers. These deaths were supposed to be clean and quick. And so whatever connection you want to draw between a Jewish sacrifice and Christ on the cross, the suffering, as I see it, is not part of what makes it work. Surely Jesus suffered on the cross. But if we want to call him our atonement goat, (laughs) I don't see anything in the story that would indicate that God gets more out of this because the suffering is so great. It's not consistent with that application. And then I would also suggest to you that at the cross, just as, just as on Mount Moriah, God was saying, that is the end of child sacrifice. No more will my people think that that is what has to happen. I would propose to you that on the cross, God is saying to people, this is the end of sacrifice altogether. And this is the end of scapegoating. Because the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement is a ritual scapegoat, but the human tendency is to make a scapegoat all the time, isn't it? Don't we always want to put all of the blame for everything that happens onto something or someone else and then maybe send it away and not have to bear it ourselves any longer? Jesus took on himself 
all of the evil that we had to give. He was the last, the ultimate, the final scapegoat. So three Jewish sacrifices. The sacrifice of Isaac, the Passover sacrifice, and the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Once again, if you, if you try to apply these things and make them analogous or allegorical in every single little way, they become mutually exclusive fairly quickly. Just as all those metaphors and things we talked about a few weeks ago become mutually exclusive, but they're all valid scriptural ways of describing how Jesus saves us. And so I think uh, maybe as a, a last caution in this series, I would say, yes, we see Christ in Isaac. Yes, we see Christ in the Passover lamb. And yes, we see Christ in the atonement rituals in the tabernacle and later in the temple. But there is no one thing that fully encompasses the grand, beautiful, gracious work of Christ. We need all of these stories. We need all of these images. We need to visit them and revisit them and think about them and rethink them. And what I have learned this past month and a half or so is that the story is so big that my little tiny brain cannot contain it all at once. And it is folly to suggest otherwise. Just just let it wash over you. Let the grace in the stories carry you away. You do not have to turn it into a calculus problem. You don't have to come up with a grand unifying theory. You just have to live in it and love it and receive the love that's offered in it. The last thing that I want to say to you in this atonement series is to quote one of my favorite church fathers, St. John Chrysostom. Around 480 AD, Chrysostom means golden mouth. He was the golden-mouthed preacher. And his Easter homily around 400 AD is one of the most famous sermons ever preached. I'm going to read to you uh, just a little bit of it, and then we'll take communion together. So imagine a much better public speaker than, than I am, a golden-mouthed preacher, saying these words. Let no one grieve at his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn that he has fallen again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. And now, let me ask you to remember the words of the creed. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Sometimes it says he descended into hell. Chrysostom continues. He destroyed hell when he descended into it. He put it into an uproar, even as it tasted of his flesh. Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, O hell, have been troubled by encountering him below. Hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it is mocked. It was in an uproar for it is destroyed. 
It is in an uproar, for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar, for it is now made captive. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Our communion table is open. I invite all of you who come, who would like to come and step into the waterfalls of his grace to do so now. Uh, Tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in one of the cups and receive that food for your souls. Receive his body and blood broken for you, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Um, I think we have our prayer team chairs here. If anybody would like to receive personalized prayer, you can have that happen during this time as well. Um, Please go collect your children if they're down there in the classrooms. We are going to sing a couple of more songs together. Uh, Our table is open. Come and receive the meal that he offers. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.